0: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven
2: Podcast with L.D. Will the Thrill and (laughs) TJ2.
3: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. hidey And your storyteller today, TJ2, the Deuce. There it yeah, is. Yeah, there it is. And are we actually drinking something tonight? Mm-hmm. Or are we just making noise with our mouth?
1: Nope, nope. Uh, we're enjoying a uh, Sierra Vesa from Sierra Nevada today.
3: Ooh. Excellent. That's we, a good we, one on a hot day. Didn't we go to the brewery with you on Christmas? Yeah.
1: Yes, that's yes, that's the brewery that we went to a couple of years ago. Because I am a newspaper man and we're recording this on Monday, November second, I will only be having one. Probably a good idea. <laughs> can't, can't be all stink can't be stinking like booze tomorrow when I have to work like twenty hours.
3: Oh my God. Yeah, I can't
1: all, imagine. You're like all hung over and pooping on myself and <laughs> stuff like that. So anyway.
3: I mean, on the plus side, it's, in theory, <coughs> our duty as uh, American citizens <laughs> will be duty. over with, shut up, will be over with tomorrow. I actually went and voted today, and my, my whole polling experience was, from start to finish, a half hour long. I can only imagine what it's going to be tomorrow. Oh, it's a mess. It's going to probably be, because a, a, when we voted in the primaries in February, it took me, what, five and a half hours to get through the polling? Yeah, you were online for, like, five. And hours. People were ordering food from, <laughs> like, Pizza Hut and the Chinese food place, like, down the street, just because they had been there for, like, two or three meals. So, I am, I'm, for one, I'm very excited that by the time that this episode comes out, our duties as civilians will be done, and pe- I will stop getting those stupid flyers and the phone calls and the texts. All oh, the phone calls,
1: jeez. I, I can't tell you of uh, the degree to which I'm tired of watching political commercials from everybody. Oh, I long, yeah. I long, I long for the days when I could watch the local news in the morning and only be bothered by ambulance chasing lawyers, imploring you to dial all sixes or something okay, with look, the mustache.
3: Yeah. Look, all I got to say is I want to just watch one episode of Jeopardy without being told to vote no on Prop 22. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Stop it. Well, the other the other thing that happened that is kind of breaking right now and uh we don't have all the information so of course we're not a news source but i will say our hearts go out to the people of vienna right now i understand that there are coordinated attacks on the city and we are very very sorry for those people and uh, we pray for the safety of everyone in austria please stay safe absolutely uh the one final piece of information about the episodes guys we understand that we had a deteriorating level of audio that happened once uh mr tj2 the deuce came on (laughs) in about february that's going to get better because we are going to be moving we're going to be having a studio that is going to be closer to him and he can actually be in the studio and record with us so at that point our audio is going to get so much better no we haven't had any complaints about it yet but uh, just my personal idiosyncrasies of being that perfectionist feel like I need to say something about that, so uh,
4: it will be fixed
1: because, yeah, because I because I, you can tell I worry about how professional I sound drinking throughout <laughs> every episode we've ever done. Yep, <laughs> you're committed to the crowd. I complete, I totally care.
3: Uh, on the plus side, it looks like you completely typed this out, which means I probably won't have to go through the entire episode and pull out all of your.
1: <laughs> yeah it gets a little dicey when i have to finish like literally right before we start and it's like handwritten notes and my my handwriting as i've said before looks like a monkey throwing its poop at a big white sheet
3: i mean that's <laughs> such that i such
1: that i can't even read it
3: it's that's genetic t
1: like, like I'll, I'll be i'll be going through and like i think that says guitar maybe <laughs> what does it say after guitar it says something about a twinkie poop <laughs> weenie wagon no i probably didn't write that what does that say huh yep
3: Yep. that's why i just started typing out everything and some people make fun of me i'm like do you want to read this like even if i give a even if i give a a christmas card or something i will type the letter that goes inside of it and then just sign the card because i'm like you're not going to understand what i'm writing So uh, understanding what you were writing today, who are we talking about and why are we talking about this?
1: Okay, well, I was informed and I didn't know that this was a tradition you'd started. When it's your birthday month, you get to pick the topics. Since uh, in about 11 days, I'll be um, subsisting on a diet of prune smoothies and Cold cereal or whatever, Old hey, you'll get
3: this You'll get the Sunrise Special at uh, Denny's.
1: Yeah, I'll get like the nickel coffee at Hardy's or whatever. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> there you go. So I decided that we were going to do drummers. Yeah, so um, you are doing... Today, I will be doing John Bonham. All
3: right, well, let's get this ball rolling, T.
1: All right. When he stood at the front of the stage at the beginning of the show, vocalist Robert Plant said he often heard a voice from behind him shout, cannons! <laughs> <laughs> that came from the wild man behind the drum kit and was a perfect metaphor for the man who would yell it. A cannon is so loud, it actually shakes the ground when it fires. It can leave a mark that lasts forever. It can operate with deadly efficiency, but at times you have absolutely no idea where it's going. And the lifespan of a cannon isn't very long either. All those qualities are reminiscent of John Bonham. This is the story of a man that some called Bonzo, some called the beast, (laughs) and that many call the greatest drummer to ever live john henry bonham was born may 31st 1948 in redditch worcestershire england to mother joan isabel Sargent and his namesake father who went by jack in fact his grandfather was also named john henry bonham uh that bonham lived long enough to become one of the world's best known drummers is fairly amazing his mother was in labor with him for 26 hours that's like you uh, yeah, and upon being born, Bonham's heart stopped beating. Whoa. Oh, wow. By that point, the doctor in charge of his delivery had already left the hospital ward. So the nurse on duty frantically called another who did manage to revive him. According to the website, John Bonham dot something, something something, that nurse supposedly said it was, quote, a miracle that he survived.
3: Ooh. Wow. You so didn't a little have, bit of a rough you, start. You didn't have those problems, though.
1: You just... You I know. just took my good, sweet time getting on out of there.
3: I mean, and it... it kind of lasts the rest of your life. I came extremely early and that will stick with me for the rest of my life. Yes, I was
1: was 13 days late and our mother was in uh, labor with me for something like 36 hours.
4: You didn't want to uh, make an appearance. I was like
3: like a month and a half early and it took mom like five hours from beginning to
1: end. Yes, if that. Yeah. (laughs) Interestingly, it it's not particularly noted that Bonham grew up in a musical household. That seems to be a common thing that we have on Rock and Roll Heaven, is they, they grow up with, you know, a mother that sings in a choir or a dad that plays guitar or whatever. That wasn't really the case with Bonham, at least not in the sense that his parents played instruments, sang, or paid for Bonham to have any proper lessons. However, his sister, Deborah, who is 14 years his junior, is a very well known rock and blues vocalist in the mother country who toured with or opened for Van Halen. Humble Pie, Alana Miles and Foreigner during her career. Humble Pie is a band I always forget exists. <laughs> yes, and and we shouldn't because Steve Winwood was in them and they're so awesome.
3: And I always forget I that Alana on. Miles didn't come out like 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, Black Velvet was 89. Yeah, it has been a minute.
3: Yes, it has.
1: His younger brother, Nick, who died in 2000, was a well-known disc jockey, author, and photographer. His cousin, Billy, played keyboards in several bands, and many years after his death, his mother would join a group called the Zimmers, an English band that was formed in 2007, which was believed to have the oldest members of any band in the world. It was put together as part of a BBC documentary on the plight of the aging. Wait wait a minute, older than the Stones? (coughs) Yeah, this, this, these were people, like, uh, in their 90s. Oh uh, a, a, there was one There was one guy who was part of the Zimmers who apparently claimed to be 105. <laughs> but then there was some dispute that, no, 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 this gentleman is only 98. Oh, it's like that's like on. That's
3: like the Young at Heart chorus, right? Where the, the average age is 87. Something? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, this was like a traveling road show of the co- cast of Cocoon or something.
3: <laughs>
1: oh, Wilford Brum. Oh,
3: Wilford R.I.P., yes. yes. well, dude.
1: R.I.P. with Wilford Brimley. Mm -hmm. Bonham seemed to have a fairly high aptitude for and interest in music from a very early age. At the age of six, he sort of made himself a drum kit out of pots, pans, and bath salt containers, and a large coffee tin (laughs) with knives and forks serving as makeshift drumsticks. According to brother Michael, Bonham was tremendously inspired to pursue drumming further when his father took him to see the movie The Benny Goodman Story, Ah. which featured former Benny Goodman drummer and band leader Gene Krupa. Uh, There are a couple of notable scenes in the film that prominently feature Krupa playing, including on the Louis Prima classic Sing, Sing, Sing on the Tom Tom drums. He also saw the movie Beat the Band, which features a scene that uh, made a big impression on Bonham in which Krupa beat on steam pipes with a pair of drumsticks. Michael said that for his brother, quote, Gene Krupa was God. Because rock and roll was still in its absolute infancy, Krupa and fellow jazz and big band drummer Buddy Rich were hugely influential on nearly all early rock drummers. Though his ear was eventually also called by early rock drummers like Earl Palmer, who played with Little Richard, Fats Domino, and Eddie Cochran.
4: Wow. I feel like a lot of roads go back to Buddy Rich. Yeah.
1: It, it, it certainly seems to. And he's one of the only people, as you read best of lists, which are of course very subjective as we know but he's sometimes about the only person who you ever see ranked ahead of bonham huh ever when bonham turned 10 his mother bought him his first actual drum that being a snare when he turned 15 bonham's parents bought him a premier percussion drum set per bonham's retelling quote it was almost prehistoric most of it was rust yeah. Bonham eventually saved up enough money to buy a secondhand drum kit, however. Bonham's father was a carpenter who helped run the family business his father had started, the J.H. Bonham and Son Building Company. Joan ran a local newsagent shop out of their house. So as a two-income family, the Bonhams were able to afford to send their two sons to Wilton House Private School. Bonham then attended the Lodge Farm County Secondary School. It was while Bonham attended this school that his parents received a now famous report from the head teacher stating, quote, he will either end up a dust man or a millionaire.
4: <laughs> Not a lot of gray space there.
1: <laughs> so they knew he was going to be great or nothing, I guess. Yeah. As mentioned, Bonham never had formal training of any kind on the drums, but he did pick up a few pointers from a friend named Gary Alcock. Bonham apparently just walked to Alcock's nearby home, rang the doorbell completely unannounced and stated, my name's John Bonham. I'm a drummer, and I'm potty about cars. And I'm Potty, not- I guess, has a different meaning than it does here. Yeah. that's where, like, little people poop, <laughs> I think. I guess it means crazy. I'm potty about cars. I do love British slang. I think it's wonderful. I, I do, too. I, I'm just using using context clues. I would take it to mean he was crazy about cars. See, uh, I, I, yeah.
3: I like the word loo. I'm going to, to the, the loo. loo. Yeah.
1: I'm going to the loo. I'm going to visit <laughs> the Johnny. Kind of fancy. Pip, pip, cheerio. I'm going to go
4: take a dump in the loo. <laughs> Okay, governor, you go ahead and you poop.
1: I'm going to go drop a deuce in the water closet. (laughs) I'm sure that's how they talk. Alcock was several years older than Bonham and had played drums with an orchestra. Bonham knew that, and he had also heard that Alcock was a fellow car enthusiast. Uh, Quote, I never gave him lessons as such. I didn't teach him at all. But we'd sit in the front room with sticks and a practice pad, and I'd show him a few things. It was just a case of, do you know this one, Alcock remembered? He did give Bonham some pointers and and did show him some basic techniques. When Bonham first hit the practice pad, Alcock said, quote, there was no rebound. He hit it like he was hammering a nail, basically. So he showed him that there should be an upstroke and a downstroke when you're playing drums. One of the characteristics that would set Bonham apart from other drummers was evident even in those early days, however. Quote, I remember him playing on one of my snare drums and me saying, for Christ's sakes, John, take it steady. I thought he was going to knock it through the floorboards. He certainly hit hard. And that's one of the things that he would be famous for was the power that he brought to to the drums. Smacking the crap out of them. Just just absolutely just hammering the crap out of them. Oddly, Alcock remembered that Bonham told him he was trying to decide whether to pursue drumming full-time or to become an electrician, which he said was something else that interested him and he thought he'd be good at. He was later quoted as saying, though, that he ended up pursuing drumming because it was the only thing that he was really ever good at. <laughs> Bonham was also a music fan. His favorite British groups included Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, the Hollies, who I actually have heard of, and the Graham Bond organization, which featured a drummer who would go on to be in a slightly more well-known band by the name of Cream. Huh. Ah. That drummer, Ginger Baker, was one of Bonham's idols. Yep. Who we, I think, just died last year, if I remember correctly. As already mentioned, he all but deified Gene Krupa and was a fan of American jazz drummers like Buddy Rich, Art Blakey, Max Roach, and Louis Belson. While still in school, Bonham became the drummer for the Blue Star Trio. I know you're a big fan of of crappy band names, God,
3: That is awful.
1: (laughs) Oh, they're they're, they're much worse. Come Just wait. Uh, (laughs) And he would jam with a number of other local bands. If you were a drummer, the sight of Bonham at one of your shows was not exactly something that you welcomed. (laughs) Friend Bill Harvey remembered that the two would often go to see local bands and Bonham's customary critique was, quote, that drummer is crap. (laughs) When When the band would take a break, Bonham would make a beeline for the band leader and say, quote, your drummer's not much good, is he? Let me have a go and I'll show you. He would then get on the guy's drum kit, assaulted. Everyone in the joint would be floored. And in the words of Harvey, quote, the poor chap would get the sack and John would take his job he was pushy and he got wherever he got wherever he wanted but he had a heart of gold
3: (laughs) you got a guy sacked which is another great british term uh you got a guy sacked but he had a heart of gold
1: but he but he had a heart of gold so how could you stay mad at him (laughs) um bonham ended his formal education at, at 16 and began working with his father as an apprentice Laying bricks and other physical work helped build up Bonham's strength, which gave him even more force and power than he already had on the drums. The site foreman apparently did take a pretty dim view of Bonham showing up late and tired to work. He was still playing gigs at night, which did not comport well with the early hours that the crew was required to keep. Bonham eventually quit, and I found this hilarious and I don't know why. He he quit uh, working as a a, a carpenter's apprentice and began to work at a gentleman's clothing store. Huh. So I'm imagining like John Bonham saying like, hey mate, could I interest you in a pair of pla- plaid slacks?
4: <laughs> He's got
1: like the measuring tape and everything. Yeah, r- Right, like what size dungarees do you wear there chap? <laughs> and, and I couldn't find verification on this of any kind. I wonder if working at the gentleman's clothing store is the nexus of him wearing the pork pie hat
3: interesting
1: Perhaps. because you know, he he very famously wore a lot of hats the most famous being that the, the, the pork pie hat right so I, I wonder if that's something he picked up while he worked at a gentleman's clothiers
3: it, it's possible
1: uh i'm just gonna say he did yeah you
3: yeah. know what yeah. we're just gonna we're just gonna make it up right here if you if you speak it into the universe it's true
1: yep uh, if it's on a podcast it's true that's verified we'll be yeah. with um, tomorrow yep <laughs> He continued to play with a number of bands, including, are you ready, L.D.? Yep. Terry Webb and the Spiders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's awesome. Okay. Pat Wayne and the Beachcombers. Next. <laughs> the <laughs> Nikki James Movement. <laughs> okay,
3: I'm going to say I actually kind of like that one.
1: That one's not bad. That but one's not bad. Steve Brett and the Mavericks stop it.
3: You stop <laughs> it right now.
1: The Mayfair set uh. and Way of Life. Oh, Ugh. yeah. That, that sounds
3: like they make that music that you listen to when you're getting a massage. Like you? Yeah.
1: <laughs> there was another band he played with called The Senators. It was with this band that Bonham made his first known recording. So we're going to have our first musical interlude of the episode. But before warned, that the sound of the Senators is nothing at all like what you have come to expect from any band featuring John Bonham. So we're going to hear that now. This is the Senators with a song called "She's a Mod." She's a mod. She's a mod. She's a mod. She's
0: a mod. She's a mod. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's a mod. She's a mod. Yeah, yeah. She's a mod. She's a mod. She won't change anymore. She's a mod, she's a mod, mod. yeah, 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 she's a mod, she's a mod, yeah, yeah, she's a mod, she's a mod, she won't change anymore. She's a mother, she's a mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a mother, she's a mother. Yeah, yeah, she's a mother, she's a mother. She won't take any
1: more. She's a
5: mother, she's a monkey, Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a mother, she's a monkey, Yeah,
1: she's a mother, she's a mother. She won't take any more. Okay, so what what did y'all what did y'all think? We we were talking as it played. It it sounds like maybe a little bit of a Beatles knockoff.
3: Kind of, but not as hard. It's not as hard as I thought it would have been coming from John Bonham. Like, it's not...
1: No, but that's... Right, That but that's that was the Senators with She's Mod with a very young John Bonham on, on the drums. Well, uh, that song was not a big hit, at least not for the Senators, because the record company that put the song out went bankrupt
4: oh. <laughs> soon after the release. It's hardly their fault.
1: It was, however... Remade by a band called, and you'll love this one, LD Ray Columbus and the Invaders.
6: <laughs>
3: right. And it
1: became a it became a hit in several countries, including New Zealand.
3: I, I wonder the if they couldn't actually carry that name because of Paul Revere and the Raiders,
4: Ray Columbus. That's it.
1: That's entirely possible. He did go to the studio with the band Way of Life, but was told that he played so loudly he was quote unrecordable. <laughs> And that there was, in fact, no future in playing so loudly. Many years later, he sent the band's manager one of Led Zeppelin's gold records with a note attached that simply read, thanks for your advice. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Burn. By this time, Bonham had married a woman named Pat, who he'd met while playing with Terry Webb and the Spiders. She was pregnant on their wedding day and soon gave birth to their first child, a son named Jason, Mm. who music fans have probably heard of. Absolutely. Yep. With real-life responsibilities, Bonham had to make money. He worked other jobs, but he began drumming with a band called The Crawling Kingsnakes. He quickly struck up a friendship with the band's vocalist, a fellow 17-year-old named Robert Plant.
3: Oh,
1: okay. In a radio interview, Plant recalled their first ever meeting. He remembers Bonham having, quote, an arrogant air and coming off as very cocky as he watched the crawling king snakes that's the plant robert plant who is known uh, as right plant as robert plant thinks you're a tad pretentious yeah. <laughs> he approached plant when the band took a break he said quote you're pretty good but you'd be a lot better if you had a drummer like me i thought nobody says that sort of thing to me Doesn't he know who I might one day be? And that was the start of a musical relationship that Plant said was at times controversial and not always smooth, but would ultimately produce amazing results. Mm. Bonham's mother came to one of the band shows. Bonham had joined, and uh, one of the shows that once Bonham had joined, and to say the least, she took a very dim view of Plant's onstage antics. During one song, he wrapped his leg around a mic stand and began to simulate sex with it. Say okay. so Dry humped a mic stand, basically. His mother rushed the stage and shouted, John, you get off those drums now. You're not playing with that boy. He's a pervert. <laughs>
5: That's <is> amazing.
1: <laughs> I, then, I then just imagine that she, she said, and he wears his trousers too tight, and I can see his tides up. <laughs>
5: he's a pervert. You're
1: not playing with that boy, he's a pervert. <laughs> some people were a bit more impressed <laughs> a young a young fan saw the group at london's marquee and said he was quote "dumbstruck by the drummer that was a fellow named will i'm gonna need you to cover ld's ears real quick okay go ahead phil collins
4: i could hear through <laughs> your hands
1: i tried
3: oh i hate that man <laughs> Oh
4: and it's God. so unjustified. With the- Who hates Phil Collins? I know.
1: You know what? I do. Other than the guy that drowned that other guy that he watched. <laughs> but aside from that, quote, he was doing things with his bass drum that I'd never seen or heard before. He then played a solo, and again, I'd never heard or seen a drummer play like that. He played with his hands on the drums. I later found out that he was a bricklayer. He had very hard hands, and it was obvious from seeing him solo that night. I vowed to keep an eye on this guy, Bonham, and I followed his progress. He was, even then, a major influence on my playing, Colin said. There you go.
3: I don't need to hear his thoughts. (laughs)
1: Hard hard though those hands were, it wasn't uncommon for Bonham to cut his hands while playing without sticks and for blood to splatter all over his drum key. Well, he played so aggressively. Yeah, he apparently would vigorously play the drums at times with his hands. And when he would hit the cymbals, a lot of times the metal would actually cut his hands and he'd end up splattering blood all over everything.
4: Oh, that is horrific.
1: Bonham did end up leaving the band, but not because of his mother disapproved of Plant bumping his junk all over a mic stand. (laughs) It was actually because of the objections of another woman in his life, that being wife, Pat. She, Bonham, and son Jason lived in a caravan for a time, which I took to be like a trailer, basically. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And she actually had to move in with her parents for a time. She told him, "You've got to get away from Planty because we weren't making any money." Plant said, "And he's
3: a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> he's a prevert! Wib- this is, where we look- is naughty. It's
7: all about the stage."
3: <laughs> I again would like to apologize to <laughs> our European listeners, our our English listeners, and uh, women. <laughs> and everyone yeah.
1: plant said that there was actually a telltale sign that Bonham was on the verge of leaving any group quote he'd say i just need to clean me drums mate plant remembered as bottom was saying he'd load his gear up in a van and then he'd just disappear <laughs> and he just wouldn't see. he just wouldn't see him for a couple of months while he went and played with somebody else huh. uh, the, t- the two would reunite at one point in another group the band of joy it was easy for Bonham to find work at the kit for most anybody because Plant said, quote, everybody wanted him. That was partly because of his talent, but also because of his showmanship. He could do the trick where he could spin a stick with one hand while he hammered away with the other one. But Plant said that he had the good sense to not overuse the stage tricks that he was so good at. Bonham also made friends with other drummers, including a young man named Keith Moon.
3: Hey, I know that guy.
1: And another, whose band Black Sabbath was a few years from hitting the big time in Bill Ward. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, it was Ward who recalled Bonham having him sit and serve as almost a decibel meter. He particularly wanted feedback on his hitting of the bass drum. He asked, Can you feel that in your guts? In my stomach, I felt it, said Ward, who noted that Bonham, quote, always hit the sweet spot on his bass drum. Bonham developed a reputation as the loudest drummer in England. he finally secured a regular and quite well-paying gig for american blues musician tim rose the band of joy had actually opened for him on one earlier tour he did and he was very impressed with bonham's work he said bonham was still working to perfect his timing at that point but that his talent was undeniable and he regretted that the two never recorded anything together little did he know that bonham's time with his band would be fairly short-lived So, at about this time, there were a a number of very noteworthy British bands, some of which had already had success domestically and abroad, and one of those was the Yardbirds. Yeah. Which, during its existence, we just have to, to say, sported probably the greatest array of guitar players ever. Probably, yeah. Of any band. Because those guitarists included Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. Good Lord. Clapton left when he felt the group was straying too far from its blues roots and into a more pop sound that he didn't care for. Beck replaced him, and Page was originally brought on to play bass, believe it or not. Wow. He switched to the guitar shortly thereafter, giving the group a near-unprecedented two-guitar attack, but Beck eventually left, making Page the lone guitar player. Born in 1944 in West London, Page was considered a bit of a phenom And even when he was only in his late teens and early 20s, he was a sought-after-session guitarist. And I found some of this really interesting. He played on a lot of recordings, including Joe Cocker's With a Little Help from My Friends. Oh, wow. That's Jimmy Page. Petula Clark's Downtown. Love Petula Clark. The next one is great. Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. Oh,
3: I know that. Connery. And Connery
1: we lost literally on Saturday. Over the weekend, yeah, that was that was awful. Um,
3: oh, that was so. I'm um, because Will is a massive Bond fan, and he introduced me to James Bond. And the first slot machine that we saw when we were in Vegas
4: was literally a Double O Seven slot machine. Oh wow! And I did order a
1: dry vodka martini because. Yeah, good for, uh, good for you, as you should have, good for you. But yeah, so, so actually, if you listen to the, to the Goldfinger song, playing guitar on that is Jimmy Page. That's amazing. That, that, he also played on recordings by, listen to this, The Who, The Kinks, The Rolling Stones, Nico, and Marianne Faithful, a veritable who's who of British rock.
3: Wow. We just need to take a short break for our sponsors, and we will be right
1: back. Okay. All right, so uh, jumping back into our episode here on the great John Bonham, by 1968, the Yardbirds were starting to run out of steam, so Page decided that he was going to put together a new band. The group didn't come together exactly the way he had planned, though. What he planned to do was pull together people that he knew or had worked with. A multi-instrumentalist and arranger by the name of John Paul Jones reached out to Page when his wife told him that she'd read about Page deciding to start his own band. He was chosen as the bass player. His first choice for vocalist was actually a renowned singer named Terry Reed who was interested but was also busy with other projects.
4: Why do I know that
1: name? Uh, he was a pretty, a, a pretty well-known singer, right. as, I think especially in, in in the mother country. But Page told him, you know, like I need a yes or no answer like right now. So he told him that he would have to politely decline. However, he recommended a friend, that being a guy named Robert Plant. Yeah. Yeah. Page was going to go out on a hunt for an established drummer when Plant told him that he just had to go see this guy that he knew, that being one john henry bonham Mm -hmm. quote he was tremendous absolutely tremendous page remember we knew the only problem with this was pat john bonham's wife you can't go back to Planty we will (laughs) starve plant remember her saying
3: Uh, okay i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you right here every time are you going to do the terrible accent because i feel like (laughs) alienating people
1: (laughs) yeah probably yeah, wow.
4: Monty Python, Terry Jones. I love it. I'm so sorry. Guys, uh,
3: Rock and Roll Heaven audience, <laughs> we love all of you. And I just understand that uh, the views and accents put on by Mr. <laughs> T.J. The producer are not reflective of those all encompassing at Rock and Roll Heaven. Oh God!
1: Well, well, because his wife objected, Bonham initially said no. He was making good money with Rose. And he was drawing interest from some other well-known acts, including Joe Cocker who was interested in bringing Bonham on as, as his drummer. The group had already lined up a manager, and he is a very key figure as you go forward. It's a guy named Peter Grant, a central figure in the band. He was a six-foot-two, 300-pound former professional wrestler who took no prisoners and was usually packing heat.
3: Wow, that, that sounds like a character out of a Bond
1: movie. It does. It it, it very much does. He sent multiple telegrams trying to convince Bonham to join up. Bonham assured Rose that he was not interested, saying he enjoyed playing with him, and that the money was just too good to turn down. Still, once Pat finally relented and told Bonham that he could do whatever he wanted to, Rose showed up for a gig, only to find that he no longer had a drummer. Bonham had not only left, he had not bothered to tell Rose he was leaving. Oh,
3: (laughs) come on, dude. Come on. Come on, John. Be better.
1: Yeah. The new band would initially go by the name The New Yardbirds, basically to fulfill some contractually obligated concert dates that they had in Scandinavia. John Paul Jones remembers the first time the group got together to rehearse in a basement. He was anxious to meet his new rhythm section partner. Quote, as a bass player, the first thing you think of is, I wonder what the drummer's gonna be like, Jones said. It was suggested that they work on a version of the song Train Kept a Rollin', which the Yardbirds often played in concert. Bonham didn't really know it, but the others talked him through it quickly. As Paige, Bonham, and Jones began to play and Plant started to sing, Jones said something special happened instantly. Quote, we knew we just had something that no one else had. It was like an explosion in the room, and I knew by about the third beat that this was going to go great. The feel, the attitude, I knew that we could work together. The The band's first gig was in Copenhagen on September 4th, 1968. Traveling to the gig mark the first time that Bonham ever set foot on an airplane.
3: Hey, T, how many yes. planes have you been on?
1: I've uh, flown three or four times, maybe. Oh, I, not, not none since 2007.
3: Your, your fear of flying, to me, is astonishing. And you're talking about somebody who has to basically be uh, completely knocked out to be dragged onto a flight. But uh, you you and mom are just special creatures.
1: As I've told you before, had the good Lord intended for me to fly, he would also have seen to it that I crapped on people's windshields. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so they played this gig in Copenhagen as the New Yardbirds. The band would return home for its first gig the following month, but would do so with a brand new name. Now, there are a few versions of how the name was concocted, but it almost certainly was coined by a member of The Who. At one point, apparently, Keith Moon and John Entwistle actually considered leaving The Who to form a supergroup with Paige. Oh, my God. It was, either, it was either Moon or Entwistle. There are versions that say it was one or the other, who, um, who joked that their perspective band would crash like a lead balloon. So I just want to point out, Le- can you
4: picture an alternate universe where that goes through?
1: Yeah, wow.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah! Wow. But Yeah. But, but they made a joke that, like, oh, if we did that, it would crash like a lead balloon. It would be like a lead Zeppelin. Huh page made one slight spelling change that being to drop the a from lead so that nobody would mistakenly pronounce it lead zeppelin a wise choice Ah. and the band hit the stage new name intact at surrey university for the first time on october 15th 1968 the band soon signed with atlantic records and grant negotiated an incredibly lucrative contract the band got an enormous advance estimated to have been near $200,000, a then record for a new band.
3: And that doesn't, we rarely hear the stories about, oh, they got a good deal and they made a lot of money. <laughs> not at this
1: so not at this fair. time, especially. No, you sure don't. You, you almost never did. You also have to consider that while Page was a known quantity and Jones was to an extent, Plant and Bonham were basically walking right out of the pub circuit into the big time. They weren't known quantities at all, but Plant said, quote, Bonzo and I were pretty wet behind the ears, but we were good, and we were projecting something ourselves. The 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 uh, deal that Grant negotiated for them also gave them complete creative control of music, including over which songs would be chosen as singles and over album artwork.
4: See, I wonder if the fact that he was 6'3", three, 300 pounds, and carried a gun had any weight in I'm was,
1: sure that it, had nothing to do with it, yeah. that he was just a big, he was a big, scary dude that was packing heat all the time. Yep. Led Zeppelin then went into the studio to record its first album in 1968. The idea the four had that they had something different and special that other bands lacked seemed to be reinforced by what happened at Olympic Studios in London. The self-titled debut that would launch them onward to becoming the biggest band in the world that would help define a new genre of music and be held for decades as one of the best debut albums in history was recorded over a period of four days at a relatively low cost and took a total of 36 hours to record and mix. It takes us longer to do this podcast. It's taking us 36 hours to do a podcast, easily. Oh my God. Led Zeppelin, released early in 1969, featured some songs that the band wrote in early rehearsals, at least one song that the Yardbirds had frequently played in concerts, and reworkings of some old folk and blues numbers. It went gold within weeks, Hit the top 20 in seven countries and attained gold, platinum, or diamond certification in 11 countries, including the United States, where Led Zeppelin One sold 8 million copies.
3: Cheese and crackers.
1: As the album was released, the band embarked on its first tour of the United States, get this, as an opening act for the band Vanilla Fudge. Ah, Yes. Carmine Apice, that band's drummer, admitted that Led Zeppelin was almost impossible to follow. Quote, they blew us off the stage, he said. (laughs) Apice was instantly taken by Bonham's playing, calling him, quote, an animal with the sticks in his hands. He complimented Bonham on a particular technique and he got a response that he wasn't expecting. He said, quote, I love that triplet thing, he said of a bass drum technique Bonham used on good times, bad times. He said, I got it from you. I said, no, you didn't. I've never done that. <laughs> Bonham then cited a portion of the Vanilla Fudge song Ticket to Ride. A piece said he didn't even realize he'd done it. In truth, he did it using his foot and one hand, but allowed that Bonham perfected it and did so using only his foot. Jeez. A piece said that Bonham admired his drum kit. So he contacted the Ludwig company who made his drums. And told them there was a new band with a great drummer that he thought was going to be really big, which he later called, quote, the understatement of five decades. (laughs) Soon, Bonham had a new Ludwig kit and endorsed the company for the duration of his career. So with that, we're going to listen to our first Led Zeppelin offering. And this is going to sound a little different than the senators did. (laughs) This is Led Zeppelin, Bonham and the boys doing good times, bad times. Oh, good one. holy crap that's so good it's,
3: they're just they're like literally in the top five bands of my life
1: yeah they're that that they're amazing and again the entire first album was recorded and mixed in 36 hours insane led zeppelin also opened a show or two on that first tour for iron butterfly oh
4: my god <laughs> <Iron Butterfly. laughs>
1: yes uh, uh, J.J. Jackson, who would go, uh, go on to become one of the first VJs on MTV. I don't know if you oh, guys remember yes. him or not. Yes. Um, he was still a disc jockey at that point. He went to one of those Iron Butterfly Led Zeppelin shows and raved about the opening act on the air the next day, telling his listeners, quote, you have to see this band. Huh. Among the people who was in the audience for those early shows, somebody y'all may be familiar with, named Peter Chris. Oh yeah. yes, yes, who would go on to to be a drummer for Kiss. Fans were eating it up, but critics didn't necessarily love the band right out of the box. Rolling Stone was particularly harsh in its assessment of the first album, saying that the band offered quote little that its twin, the Jeff Beck Group, didn't say as well or better three months ago. To fill the void created by the demise of Cream, they will have to find a producer, editor, and some material worthy of their collective talents. They said that P- Page was limited as a producer, said the writing was poor, and that Plant was "quote as foppish as Rod Stewart, but nowhere near as exciting." Wow! That's, they that's- took to calling the band Limp Blimp.
5: <laughs> <laughs> which, <laughs> if-
1: so so critics have always been irrelevant and
4: <laughs> apparently.
1: <laughs> you go to limpy blimpy. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
4: oh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> those, are your, <laughs> those are your terrible human beings. <laughs>
1: oh. Yeah, other reviewers were kinder, but it established an early precedent of the band not speaking to the press and rarely making television appearances in their career. Fans who wanted Led Zeppelin had to buy the records or come to the shows, and they would do both in droves for years to come. Other musicians realized pretty early on that the band had produced something special. Deep Purple bassist Roger Glover said, quote, the word heavy was being used a lot in the mid to late 60s, heavy music. I mean, Hendrix and Cream were sort of paving the way, if you like. I thought heavy was just having more equipment and playing louder. It's not that. It's not the same old stuff, but louder. But I'd suddenly realized when I listened to Zeppelin, especially Dazed and Confused and How Many More Times, that heavy didn't mean loud and big. It was an attitude. A piece said that he liked the fact that the drums and the bass were up at the forefront, which is something he suspects that the band picked up from the American blues recordings that influenced them so much. There's a clip you can find online where George Harrison in the studio recording with the Beatles is asked if he's heard the new record by Jimmy Page's new band. It's played for him. And he simply says, quote, it's incredible.
3: Uh, That's really high praise because George Harrison is
4: a genius. He's pretty
1: awesome. He's
4: my favorite Beatle.
1: <laughs> he would actually become friends with, with Led Zeppelin. The band recorded Led Zeppelin 2 while it was on the road, like before and after concerts in various studios in a number of different cities. Basically, like they'd fly into somewhere. Well, we got a couple hours before the show and they would run in the studio and work for a couple hours and then then go do the show. And they were trying to capture the frenzy and the live energy that they, they took to the stage each night. Released in October of 1969, the album hit number one in eight countries and sold even better than its predecessor. Led Zeppelin II sold 12 million copies in the United States.
3: Holy cow.
1: And went quadruple platinum in Britain. It also contained the band's biggest hit single on the Billboard charts, that being Whole of Love, which reached number four. An edited version was played on the radio in the United States, which the band was not particularly pleased with, by the way. Reaching number one on the album charts was not only a massive achievement for a band that had only been together for a year, it represented a huge sea change as well. I read you the reactions of a couple of fellow musicians to the first Led Zeppelin album, and I chose one of them for a very specific reason. The album Led Zeppelin II, upon moving to number one on the charts, supplanted Abbey Road by The Beatles.
5: Oh!
1: In early 1970, readers of Melody Maker Magazine voted Zeppelin the number one band in the world, ending a string of eight straight such honors for The Beatles. Wow. The Beatles had won Best Band in the World, according to this magazine's readers, for eight years in a row. Led Zeppelin supplanted them atop that list. Oh wow! Of course, the Fab Four was on the verge of breaking up, but a new era of music was dawning and the baton appeared to have been passed. So how big a deal was the band in the 1970s, the early 70s, or any time they played anywhere? In 1973, Elvis Presley met with the band in Los Angeles, saying he wanted to meet, quote, those guys who were outselling me. Plant was apparently so awestruck upon meeting one of his idols that he could barely speak. So sort of like will the thrill when he met James Taylor or you I, when you uh, met Brian May?
4: I mean, well, it's
3: acceptable. Will Will is a you guys know from listening to these episodes, Will is a very well-spoken, educated man. I mean, I married above my station really when it comes to that. And he was like an infant seeing a tilt-a-whirl for the
4: first time. Listen, if Garth Brooks can fall apart in James Taylor's presence, it's okay if I do it. Just saying. <sighs> At
1: least I... Yes. But so so Plant was just so awestruck and and such a fanboy like he almost literally couldn't speak. So <laughs> John Paul Jones managed to make a little bit of small talk with the king about his watch. Uh, Elvis was wearing a nice watch and and Jones was like, "Oh, you yeah, know, that's a that's a very nice watch." Elvis instantly traded him that five thousand dollar gold and diamond watch for the ten dollar Mickey Mouse watch he was wearing. Holy
3: crap! Wow. They
1: ended up they ended up becoming friends, and and Elvis actually would seat the band on the front row at some of his concerts.
3: That is so. That man, is cool. the the sixties and seventies were so weird. I mean, I feel sad that we missed this era of. Overlap. Elvis giving
1: his, Elvis giving his $5,000 golden diamond watch to John Paul Jones in return for a $10 Mickey Mouse watch. Yeah, I wish yeah. I'd been there.
3: Yeah, I wish I'd, there are a lot of things I wish I'd been there for. i like, Led Zeppelin's first concert, wish I'd been there.
1: Yep. 1936
3: um, Wembley Queen, but I mean, the, 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 this landscape, this musical landscape is, is so interesting in hindsight, because you have so much overlap in
1: legends. Yeah, well, just think about just the music coming from the UK in this era. Oh, Queen yeah. would be on that list. Yeah. yeah. Zeppelin, Black Sabbath was starting by this time. And it's so funny. It's almost like we play like a little game of ping pong across the Atlantic. You know, the, the these blues artists from the United States influenced these British rock musicians who then inspired a whole other era of rock musicians in the United States. It's It's just kind of back and forth across the Atlantic. Yeah, it's true. So Led Zeppelin 2 had some absolute bangers, Heartbreaker, Living Loving Maid, and Ramble On.
4: Good album.
1: Good. It also featured a drum-based instrumental called Moby Dick, which we will get to later in the program. And that was just an absolute showcase for Bonham, and it became a very highly anticipated showstopper for their live gigs. And and it would almost invariably feature him playing the drums with his hands and cutting himself and bleeding all over everything. I want to play something different from this album though, specifically something that demonstrates that Bonham did a lot more than just hammer away on the drums. Oh, I love this song. This is one of my favorites. Um, In an interview from a few years ago, Robert Plant bristled at at the notion that, you know, Bonham was just bang, bang, bang. Um, He called him, quote, the blackest white drummer ever. (laughs) He said in the early 70s, the band would often go to black blues clubs in America. And now this is during a time when a lot of clubs remained self-segregated, despite civil rights legislation having passed years before that you know, ended the practice officially. So they would talk their way into black blues clubs. And on one occasion, Bonham talked his way onto stage to play with Bobby Blue Bland. Quote, he was so sassy, so brilliant, Plant said of Bonham's playing that night. He then recalled that as Bonham laid down a beat, the rest of the band smiled. Those world class blues players fell right in behind him. It was monstrous, sexy drumming, Plant said. So let's hear something from Led Zeppelin, too, that shows off more of Bonham's subtlety and his ability to swing a little bit. This is what is and what should never be. And
6: if I say to you tomorrow
7: Take my hand, child, come with me To a castle, I will take you. Where well, what's to be, they say will be. guess the wind, see it spin, sail away, leave
5: the day where high in the sky. and will but the wind won't blow. We really shouldn't go. It only goes to show.
7: Say to me tomorrow Oh, what fun it all would be Then what's to stop us pretty,
5: baby
7: But what is and what should never be
5: I can't do it it's been sent away Leave the day away
3: Song, oh, yeah, it's so just so good.
1: Just banging, just everything about it is amazing.
3: It's just it's, that's face melting music.
1: It is good, and, and it's uh, and, uh, and, uh, and and all four of them shine.
3: Yeah, the vocal tremendously so. Is so good because his voice is just so incredibly unique. I get so bored with singers today because mm-hmm. they all sound the same. Yeah, when you bring someone to me like that, I am. Pleased. Bon- yes. Bon- well, with- Bon Scott. I love Bon Scott. I love <laughs> Bon Scott's voice. I, 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 high voltage.
1: Danger,
7: danger. <laughs> high voltage. Day
1: day. <laughs> that is a spot on Bon Scott. That is. Just, yeah. Thank like he's here. Yep. If you don't think that sounded like Bon Scott, you can go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> with the band selling massive amounts of records selling at huge arenas, and with Grant ensuring that they got the money that was owed them. The four men were suddenly wealthy beyond their absolute wildest dreams. (laughs) Bonham, who had been so poor, his family lived in a caravan, as we mentioned, and with his in-laws, purchased Old Hyde Farm in Worcestershire, England. Uh, He did much of the building himself, and farm wasn't just a title. He did, in fact, raise Hereford cattle. Huh. That was a sensible purchase, but it doesn't mean that he didn't indulge in some of his passions, including cars and motorcycles. Well,
3: he mm. was potty for them, right?
1: <laughs> he was potty for cars, which I think means he pooped on them. I, I mean, I, I'm trying to understand how that translates to our language. But... <laughs> By 1970, he had collected 21 vintage vehicles.
4: Wow.
1: Son Jason recalled up to 15 cars being parked in front of the house at a time. <laughs> You name it, he said, when asked what kind of cars his father owned. Sister Deborah said, quote, one car was never enough for him. He'd buy them, drive them home and say, I can't drive that car. Then he'd go buy another one. She estimated that on average, he bought a new car about every six weeks. Oh, my
3: God. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you've got the money and you've got the passion and you can pay your bills who cares yeah what you're spending your money on
1: yeah buy your cars man
3: i just i can't i can't can't get i want a bugatti but i just heard because it's one of the fastest cars in the world and then Mm -hmm. i'm thinking yeah but where am i gonna drive it in south carolina probably not yeah i would get dinged i would get a very very high ticket
1: if you drive that fast in south carolina a you'd die because some driving on some of our roads, it's like driving a wagon with square wheels through like pothole canyon or something. Going up to going going up to Dead Man's Pothole Gorge. Holy crap! Our roads suck. Anyway, the band released Led Zeppelin III in 1970. Now, by the standard that the band had set for itself, it was considered a bit of a commercial disappointment, as it only went platinum in the UK and it only sold six million copies in America. Oh. The band definitely did stretch out creatively and took some chances on the release, focusing on some more acoustic numbers. Bonham actually got a lyrical songwriting credit uh, for the song Out on the Tiles, which was a term he used meaning to go out to bars. We could favor you with one of the album's more gentle acoustic offerings, but I say, say let's just kick some ass and play the lead off track, which is the most ferocious two minutes and 26 seconds in the history of music. And it pretty much shows Bonham laying down the fiercest beat imaginable. From Led Zeppelin 2, this is the immigrant song.
3: Yes! (laughs) I think when i die and i go to heaven yeah my heaven is gonna be like the whiskey a go-go in 1985 <laughs> the peak yeah it's just gonna be that that's gonna be my heaven
1: <laughs> god that song just that song just just grabs you by the throat and just kicks your ass from the minute it starts it's, it's
3: such a good
1: song does it, does it make anybody else want to kick a beaver in the face and make it dance or just me <laughs> uh
3: that, that sounds like a you kind of thing but i mean okay. actually we were just talking about how a whole new generation got to discover the immigrant song because it was featured in the Marvel movie Thor Ragnarok because that was about the time where they're, Hey, I remember
1: that down in Fraggle
3: Rock. Boop, boop (laughs) down in Fraggle Rock. Bump, bump that one. See kids, this is what I was telling you about last week was that my brother doesn't understand what pop culture is and anything that was made after maybe like 1998. He has no reference of, I'm hoping to change that one day, but But kids, you're just going to have to deal with this. I'm sorry. This is what happens when you get really, really
1: old. Thanks. (laughs) Um, Following the album's release, the band took a break from live performances to concentrate on recording a follow-up. They retired to Brawny Hour, a country house in Wales, to write new material. They started recording at Island Records' Basing Street Studios in London, but ultimately moved to Headley Grange, a country house in Hampshire, England, using the Rolling Stones' mobile studio. Quote, we needed the sort of facilities where we could have a cup of tea and wander around the garden and go in and do what we had to do, Paige said.
7: We had to go to facilities and get a cup of tea. Oh boy.
1: That was
3: great. I'm sorry, guys. A spot spot of tea for you, governor. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't get any better than this, guys. No, it
1: doesn't. And and we're barely even drinking tonight. This is what's so crazy. This is it. This is school night, yeah interestingly the fourth album actually does not have a title now some people call it led zeppelin four some people call it four symbols some call it ruins and some call it zoso um if you look at the very famous cover there are in fact no words printed on the sleeve at all it's just a picture of a guy right in a field yep Press agents advised against it, and their record company was insistent that there be an album title and the band's name, but Led Zeppelin stuck to their guns and threatened to withhold the master tapes. Page said that was a bit of a way to thumb their nose at critics, not giving the album a name and just putting nothing on the sleeve. Each member did choose a symbol to put on the album cover, however. Page designed one himself that does look like the word Zoso. Bonham chose three interlocking circles, which supposedly represent the triad of father, mother, and child. However, when turned upside down, it's also the symbol for Ballantine beer. Hey. So, the album was probably the best received critically of the band's career. Billboard called it, quote, a powerhouse album. Rolling Stone, I guess by this time, had stopped calling them limpy blimpy or whatever they had <laughs> were going with it initially and said it was, quote, the most consistently good album that they produced. And the Village Void called it a, quote, masterpiece of heavy rock. Wow. In terms of certified copies sold all times, whatever you call this album, we'll go with Led Zeppelin 4. In terms of certified copies sold all time, it trails only Michael Jackson's Thriller, Shania Twain's Come On Over, and ACDC's Back in Black.
6: Ooh, wow. And
1: the, and the Eagles' Greatest Hits, Volume 1, and Hotel California. That's it. So in terms of certified copy sold it trails thriller eagles greatest hits volume one hotel california come on over and back in black that's it
3: i mean those those are great albums
1: in terms of claimed sales it is the 11th best-selling album in history with worldwide sales of 35 million that's impressive it went nine times platinum in australia triple platinum in germany six times platinum in the UK, and has sold more than 23 million copies in the United States. It also contains what is believed to be the most requested song in radio history, that of course being Stairway to Heaven. I want to play a different song though, and I want to play it for a very particular reason. One of the most lauded drum parts in rock history is Bonham's work on the song When the Levee Breaks. Oh. It is among the most sampled drum beats in music history, having been borrowed by, among many, many others, the Beastie Boys on Rhymin' and Stealin', Dr. Dre on Lyrical Gangbang, MC Light on Survival of the Fittest, Bjork on Army of Me, Eminem on Kim, and Beyonce on Don't Hurt Yourself. So how did Bonham manage to get that otherworldly, cavernous, echo, awesomeness of a sound? He played his Ludwig kit, in the lobby of the Headley Grange with microphones hanging above him in a flight of stairs. Oh. So basically, he was sitting at the bottom of multiple flights of stairs. There were microphones draped over a rail far above him, which gave it that thunderous echo that I, nobody else has ever been able to capture, to my knowledge.
3: I mean, it, it almost sounds kind of like he's pushing toward pet sounds. Hmm. What? brian wilson would do with pet sounds by like dropping pennies in the piano and stuff like oh, that. oh sure
1: the the, the 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 lengths they went of course you have to think you know now you would click a mouse and you'd get the sound
3: yeah
1: you actually had to work for it back then so since this is one of the most sampled drum parts in the history of music let's listen to it and just listen to the drums at the start of this thing it's amazing this is led zeppelin's when the levy breaks Just the drum i mean the whole song y'all but the drums in particular on that song good lord
3: the the cohesion that they have as a band is so electrifying yeah they're all in it together
1: no just that that song in particular will is just the, I mean it's I mean it's every part of it's awesome the vocals and the guitar and the bass and the harmonica which is Robert plant playing but the drums on that good lord
4: well as like i said earlier i i would pick led zeppelin 2 as my favorite album but yes. this one is just again uh, oh, it's it's solid oh everything again it's just so tight everything they've got is just perfectly put together
1: yeah it really is so what was a led zeppelin show like at this time you might be wondering by now we've talked a lot about their studio albums well first of all very lucrative for the band <laughs> Grant had made new demands on concert promoters that to bring Led Zeppelin in required a 90-10 split in the band's favor.
3: Okay. Hello. That's a, Hello. I mean,
1: yeah. If you can get it, and a lot of them balked initially, but they ultimately realized 10% of a Led Zeppelin gig was 10% of a guaranteed sellout. So oh, Yep. they often played between two and a half and four hours. Jeez they almost never had an opening act either. Bootlegs from the time demonstrate that almost no two shows were the same either with the band sometimes just, for example, playing Dazed and Confused for five minutes, or 10, or 15, or 25. That's just Ah! what they wanted to do. (laughs) Yeah. Bill Ward said that Bonham's drumming was always on point saying, quote, he never missed a beat, like he had a metronome in his heart. They had now grown past even the largest indoor venues and filled outdoor baseball and football stadiums that seated tens of thousands of people that they, they were drawing crowds in the 50, 60, 70,000 range.
3: And that's like the dream for any band.
1: Sure. Like, is, so is is to stadiums. be
3: those, sta- We, we saw Garth Brooks. He sold out of stadium. We saw Billy Joel still sells out of stadium. Like it, you can get to that point. That's, that's, that's it, where you want to
1: be. And it, it's a totally different experience too. When you're in a big, I've only been to one that big. I saw the Eagles at Clemson's Death Valley,
6: oh wow,
3: with about
1: about eighty thousand people, and it's a very different vibe in in the in the place.
3: It's less intimate, but you're getting the vibe from the crowd. I think the largest one that we've ever seen was probably U two
1: mm-hmm. at oh, the, the at Bowl. the Rose
3: Bowl, which was massive. It was
4: booked beyond capacity. Sure,
3: but, you, literally shoulder to shoulder. But you have an energy that is completely in its own.
1: It's very much like going to a sporting event at one of those venues. It's very much like going to a football game.
3: Yeah, but you're all rooting for the same team.
1: But everybody's rooting for the same team, kind of. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, actually. Now, whether it was prompted by the wild crowds and booze and drugs or security or members of Zeppelin's crew or overzealous police, there was a lot of violence at their concerts. Which, yeah. actually dismayed, which actually dismayed the band quite a bit. Mm. I saw an interview with Robert Plant where he said that, you know, music has always been something where people come together to enjoy things, and I don't understand why they want to fight. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't get why this was happening. They traveled not by bus, but by plane, specifically by the Starship. Are <laughs> either of you familiar with the Starship? Please elaborate. Yes. Many people probably think that the band owned the plane, but in fact, they just leased it. It was a Boeing 720 that was refurbished by early 70s teen heartthrob Bobby Sherman. It had a bedroom with a king-size waterbed, a drawing room with a fake fireplace in it, a 30-foot brass-trimmed bar with a built-in electric organ, and, <laughs> and a fairly primitive, but at the time it was probably high-tech, video system with a library stock, per a Billboard magazine story, quote, with everything from duck soup to deep throat. it cost two thousand five hundred dollars per flight hour to rent
3: okay hang on i'm gonna do a really quick conversion of that in today's money Uh, this is
1: this is like 1973 or four when they started renting the starship
4: so if you're flying from london to new york Mm -hmm. that's like a
1: six hour flight yeah so it's 15 grand
3: Okay, so it's $2,500. That would be, in today's money, the $2,500 would be $13,198.78 per wow. hour. Wow,
1: and they probably just round up that 78 cents. They just nickel and dime you every way they can. <laughs> a former road manager called it, quote, an effing flying gin palace. <laughs> nice.
3: I mean, can we just They're- pause for a second and and just point out, There was a waterbed and a fake fireplace. There was a waterbed and a fake fire, a waterbed on a plane.
1: There is an iconic 1973 picture of the band in front of the plane. Dave Bryan from Bon Jovi and many other musicians are actually quoted as saying, When they saw that picture, they knew what they wanted to do with their life. (laughs) That's what they wanted. I want to be sitting there with my shirt unbuttoned, holding a beer. Hot chicks behind me, in front of this badass airplane. Yeah, they make it look good. Um, if, if you're wondering what went on in the plane, um, uh, oh, I can imagine a little bit of guessing. Hey, let me let me just put it this way: when the Alman Brothers rented it, they came in to find the word "welcome" spelled out on a tabletop in cocaine. Nice. I was
3: going to say they have, you know, in their video library, they had deep throat. So, I mean, I can imagine some of the things that were going on. We can on.
1: imagine. So, oh, and there were two apparently very attractive um, flight attendants that um, were at your service. Were, you were, they, use, were they
3: flight attendants? Are they, are you using that flight attendants? In
1: buddy uh, it, well, there, they didn't have quotation marks around flight attendants in the story. So I'll, I'll assume they were legit like flight attendants.
3: Okay. So Um. then point out the exits and the entrances. Hey, oh. -oh. -oh.
5: (laughs) (laughs) No limpy blimpy. (laughs) You're
7: a bunch
3: of perverts.
7: In the event that a mask pops down from the ceiling, (laughs) toy me up with it.
3: Again, I'm sorry to our European listeners and (laughs) And everyone. Just, yeah. I'm sorry. We apologize for the
4: following. (laughs)
7: have we hit turbulence or is bonzo rogering a grippy
1: (laughs) bonzo was becoming very well known at this point for his wild antics (laughs) we don't have the time to cover all of them we really don't we don't have time but we'll just hit some of the high spots (laughs) a piece said that he brought his mother to an early led zeppelin show during which bonham decided to take all of his clothes off as he played
3: Huh. Okay. Lee well, does the same thing.
1: He um he drove motorcycles through the lobbies of hotels and <laughs> down the hallways <laughs> on numerous occasions. He was among the first to popularize throwing TV sets out of your hotel room windows. Uh, yes.
4: Oh yes, oh, And
1: trashing rooms in general. He often sprayed people with beer and ripped their clothes off. Huh. At his 25th birthday party, he threw both George Harrison and his wife, Patty, into a swimming pool while both were still fully clothed. At one point, he and a, a friend were at a club where a DJ was playing disco records. Bonham uh, took a dim view of this and informed the DJ that if he played one more, he would regret it. He did, <laughs> at which point Bonham and his friend sprayed the guy with beer. Unfortunately, they also sprayed his soundboard with uh, beer, which made it short out and caused the, cl- the power in the entire club to go out. Oh, my God. Now, you didn't necessarily throw Bonham out of anywhere, but largely because you would want him to be in your club. I mean, it would kind of give you some cachet if a member of Led Zeppelin hung out in your place. So they didn't throw him out. They escorted him out and recommended that he not come back for a week or so.
3: (laughs) I kind of feel bad for the DJ because not only is his name lost to history, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it was the 70s and...
1: It was Yeah, and they're just playing disco records, yeah. That's
4: not bad for the guy. I like how the um, time frame wasn't specific. It was like a week or so. A know?
1: week <laughs> or so, if you could just not come back.
4: Yeah, exactly. uh, while on
1: a North American tour, Bonham became annoyed by a member of the band's entourage getting his freak on next door with a lady friend. After listening to, quote, grunting and groaning for a while, he found one of the lady's shoes outside the door and pooped in it.
3: <laughs> I had heard a story like that. Oh my god, it's true. Oh my god, I hope she kept it because you could auction that off.
1: <laughs> oh. Oh, yep. Pooped in. He encountered the girl later who greeted him by saying, Remember me, you shit in my shoe." <laughs> oh, I god. wanted to thank oh, you for god. a wonderful night.
5: <laughs> oh my god. I could
1: not. I could not find the story, but I remember reading once that when Bonzo was drinking, it was a bad idea to leave your purse lying about because if it was unattended, he would just drop a hot one in it,
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: close, close it, close it back up, sit it down and just walk off Like just and just let it? you find it later.
3: Yeah. is. Oh, Why? I don't even know what to say to this. Where is my chapstick? Oh, Lordy. <laughs> And this is why I don't carry a purse. Oh, my
1: God. (sighs) His son, Jason, remembered an instance when his father, dressed down in jeans and a sweater, as per usual, he did not dress the rock star uh, part other than the pork pie hat, if you want to consider that to be a rock star. And being naked, apparently. (laughs) And and getting naked on occasion. But Jason remembered an instance when his father, dressed down, went to a Rolls-Royce dealership and asked to test drive a car. The very haughty, huffy salesman said... Do you know how much this car costs? And Bonham told him that he did and asked for the keys. When he got them, he cranked the car up, drove it through a showroom window, parked it, tossed the keys back to the salesman, and told him to clean it up and have him ready for him the next day and to never talk back to him again. <laughs> Like well, well, you know, the, but the guy's being an asshole and it's, you know, he's at a, a Rolls Royce dealership and um, and some guy in blue jeans and a sweater comes in. Yeah, I want to, you know, drive that car. Do you know totally, how much that costs?
3: He just totally pretty woman that dude.
1: Yeah. And he drove it. He drove it straight through the window of the dealership, which I think is awesome. Good for him. <laughs> John Paul Jones recalls Bonham getting a new Trans Am and driving it nearly 100 miles per hour down the Sunset Strip. Okay. How do
3: you hit, yeah, yeah we okay me and we'll have something to say about this.
1: <laughs> okay. It's physically impossible.
3: It's it's <laughs> li- literally impossible to do 100 miles down the Sunset Strip in any meaningful way because there's so many maybe maybe it was there are less intersections but there are there's a lot of lights on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. And the, uh, the lights are really close together.
1: So Either well, he, he was probably he door was door. probably running red lights. And I, I'm I'm assuming you know, this is 70s, a lot less traffic than perhaps probably. at least enough that maybe you could feasibly go a little distance. But yeah. it was a pretty high performance car. It was a Trans Am. So he got it up to 100 miles an hour. The police pulled him over. Of course, they run up to his car with their hands on their holsters. But Bonham just got out of the car, popped the hood and engaged the officers in a lengthy discussion about horsepower. Quote, they forgot the fact he was speeding. He talked his way out of it. I'd have been in jail, Jones said. Wow. <laughs> so they said he pretty much just like popped the hood and said, Look, man, look under the look under the hood, mate. Say that the horsepower of this car and that the cops were fascinated and they kind of forgot that he was driving a Hyundai down down the Sunset Strip.
3: I'm I, the next time I get pulled over, I'm gonna do the thing from what is it, Tommy Boys or Black Sheep with the bees? Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm gonna do. I can't, I can't talk about horsepower because I would just not. I'd be like, this has four horses inside of the
1: car. It's the Four Horsemen. Woo! <laughs> and it, right. And, yeah. and if it wasn't a Ric Flair fan, then you're probably going to get arrested. <laughs> this isn't really a, a wild antic. This is kind of an eccentricity, which I, I know you like these LD. Bonham ate walls pork sausages for breakfast every single morning. Huh. And and it may actually be Wally's. walls or Wallie's. It's a it's an English sausage. I wasn't familiar with it prior to reading about it but when they were on the road he didn't chance it that they wouldn't be able to find them or that they wouldn't be able to cook them for them so he traveled with a very large supply (laughs) on one tour stop a roadie who was tasked with cooking them on a grill on the balcony said he couldn't store them in a cooler because there were so they had such a large quantity that a lot of them would have spoiled he was hesitant to put them in a hotel fridge because he feared someone would pilfer them so he ended up storing 40 pounds of sausage in the refrigerator of David Bowie.
5: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs>
1: who apparently lived, lived nearby where they were touring, and they, they called him up and said, Dave, can we come put um, bonzo I'm, sausage in the fridge?
3: I'm sorry. I'm going to need you to do that with the accent.
1: Uh, David, could we, put, could, could we trouble you to put bonzo sausages in your meat locker? <laughs> Thank you. Oh okay. God. Now, we cannot tell the story of John Bonham and his wild antics without mentioning the infamous mud shark incident.
3: Now I will say uh, we did cover this Okay. in our episodes of rumors in rock. I do believe last Halloween. Oh.
1: Okay. So, so but it
3: was a, it was a very short, it was very uh, short yeah, and I'm
1: going to now I'm just, this is probably a good parental warning time. I'm going to clean the language up, but just, The nature of what happens, you probably don't need to let your kids hear me talk about
5: this.
1: (laughs) Okay, so the band was staying at the Edgewater Inn on Elliott Bay in Puget Sound, right on the water. The hotel allowed folks who stayed there the chance to fish out their windows. Now, there are a lot of different versions of the story, but we'll go with the version told by Carmine Peace. He says he, one of Vanilla Fudge's bandmates and and Plant's wife Maureen, were in John Paul Jones's room getting high (laughs) when a groupie who he had had numerous liaisons with knocked on the door. She too was very high. And after piece mentioned something about a bandmate having a camera, she said she wanted to make a movie with them. You get the vibe that piece was trying to ditch her because she was getting a little clingy or something. So he said he was too high to deal with her. So he went to Bonham's room where Bonham, his wife, and several others were fishing. They had turned the room's bathtub into a de facto aquarium. That included a mud shark that Bonham had caught.
5: Uh-huh.
1: He mentioned the bothersome groupie and then he eventually kind of soldered on back to the other room. At some point, Bonham and three members of Zeppelin's entourage burst in with a Super 8 camera and lights. <laughs> One of them said, so you want to make an effing movie? Okay, let's do it now. Take your clothes off. She got naked, got on the bed, then bucked and writhed in pleasure as they beat her with the mud shark, which left tiny red specks of blood with each lash. Oh,
5: geez.
1: They also did some other stuff to her with the mud shark that I'm not going to go into. Huh.
4: huh?
1: I'm sure that you can just imagine what they did to a naked lady
4: <laughs> who
1: was bucking and writhing and was high. Um. various versions of the story have them feeding the woman to the shark which they did not do and also completely smearing her body with peanut butter which maybe they did
3: now it does does not that i want to see it but does the movie exist
1: somewhere nobody knows where but yeah
3: because it was
1: a real super 8 camera and they really did film it i'm sure Uh, the attorney for led zeppelin knows exactly where it is (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) And when all of them are dead, maybe we'll get to watch it. Right. <laughs> now, one one common thread that you find among those who knew Bonham is that they all describe him as warm and friendly and a genuinely good guy, but with the usual caveat being that that was subject to change when he drank heavily. Described as being a guy who always liked a pint or two, when he had a few too many, he could get crazy, and when he had a few more than that, he kind of turned into somebody else is kind of how it read. In 1971, he and his personal driver were apparently on the verge of mauling an Irish chef, leading tour manager Richard Cole to punch Bonham in the face, breaking his nose. In
5: 1976,
1: Bonham and a lady friend who was flown into town, who wasn't his wife, were in a club in Monte Carlo. He was wearing a white suit and was carrying a tear gas gun. He apparently began prodding a roadie with the gun and and They were afraid he was going to shoot him or or set this, uh, set off like a, a thing of tear gas in this club. Where do you even get
3: that?
1: Where did he, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. First of all, John, where did you get a tear gas gun? Are you parading around in like a Ricardo Maltabon suit with it? Right, and so this this Cole guy said that this club was very likely. Owned and run by a certain organization, mm-hmm. and it would be a bad sight to see drunk, white-suit-wearing, gun-toting Bonham, like, going crazy.
3: Is this, like, a family business?
1: Uh, yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. I would imagine.
1: Yes. He says that he punched Bonham in the nose again and broke it a second time, diffusing the situation.
3: Does he think <laughs> that Bonham is a shark? <laughs>
1: I don't know what I don't know what was going on with that, but on on one occasion, uh, and I think this was a documentary I watched. It details that there was apparently some friction uh, one night amongst the band members, and that Bonham knocked on Grant's door and shouted, "I've done a terrible thing. I've punched Robert in the face." <laughs> Which I mean, you know, if, if, if you figure you're four guys, you're around each other all the time. That's probably going to happen. He's bound to, yeah, yeah. So that's not. Uh, uh, probably that big a deal. A couple of these are, though. According to a Politico story, he sometimes played concerts with plastic bags full of cocaine between his legs. He was often known to walk into a bar and order 20 black Russians and hammer down the first 10 immediately. 20? 20. And he would drink 10 like, bam, 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 just kill them. Yikes. On several occasions, he apparently stuck a gun in the back of Glenn Hughes and threatened to kill him. He accused him of sleeping with his wife. Glenn Hughes played with Deep Purple. One friend said that he felt at times that Bonham, like Keith Moon, at a certain point felt like he had to live up to his reputation, which probably heightened his antics, which weren't really him. In 1975 the band had to leave the road for an extended period of time after Robert Plant and his wife were badly injured in a car wreck. When they returned to the road in 1977, they played the Day on the Green Festival in Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. A member of promoter Bill Graham's security detail allegedly assaulted Grant's 11-year-old son for taking a dressing room sign. Bonham reportedly saw it and kicked the man. When Peter Grant heard He and Zeppelin security coordinator John Benden, who was described in many stories I read as, quote, a London gangster, went into the man's trailer while Cole watched the door. One version has Bonham as being in that trailer as well. But uh, whoever was in there, they apparently beat the dude just about to death. Wow. To, To the point that blood was left splattered all over the walls. Jeez. So Bonham Cole, Grant, and Benden were all arrested and charged with assault and battery. Ultimately, they received suspended sentences and fines. You don't want to play amateur shrink, but just reading a lot of what people who knew Bonham said, it might have given you some insight into why he got to where he was drinking so much and, and when he did, tended to get out of control. Okay, so for one thing, he hated to fly, and that's that's all he did. It was just constantly fly to this gig, fly to this gig, fly to this oh, gig, fly I'm to this gig. He he hated it to the point that that flying made him physically sick.
3: I mean, I look, I I understand. I have panic attacks getting
1: on flights. Yeah. Like
3: our family is not, we're not good flyers. Our family. No,
1: we're not. He suffered, by his own telling, from severe anxiety, particularly right before concerts. Oh wow, really? He apparently felt an increasing sense of isolation while the band toured. He missed his family, for one thing. When he was home, I I found this tremendously amusing. He would often spend time with his family and friends, Ringo Starr, <laughs> Maurice Gibb, and Lulu. Oh, my. <laughs> of Two Sir With Love fame. Uh,
3: yeah, Two Sir With Love. Wow. Yes,
1: yes. In one interview I saw, the latter talked about the huge agen- adrenaline rush that you get when you perform for a huge crowd. But then she also talked about how hard it is to come down off of that. She said, quote, he just wanted peace.
3: Can we Can we backtrack just a hair? Sure. He's out with Maurice Gibb, but he throws beer on a guy who is
4: Star.
3: playing disco.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's those two things don't seem to add up, do they?
3: Weird. Okay.
1: Yeah. They, no. Yeah, but yes, yes. He Bonham, who loathed disco music, loved Maurice Gibb. They were apparently really big buddies. Interesting. Oh. Huh. Okay. Ward said that Bottom seemed most content when he was at home on the farm, but noted that as a musician, quote, we all have to get in that van or in their case, on that private jet. Hmm. Now, I've jumped around a little bit in terms of the timeline, so let's, let's get back to their uh, studio albums. So in 1973, the band put out its fifth album, Houses of the Holy. Now, it didn't sell quite as well as its predecessor, but we've mentioned the fact that almost no album in the history of music ever has. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of to be expected. It was, was still a, a tremendous hit. It hit number one in multiple countries and has sold well past diamond status in the United States. It had another killer batch of songs, including The Ocean, Jamaica, Dancing Days, No Quarter, The Song Remains the Same, Over the Hills and Far Away, and The Rain Song. Uh, The next album was 1975's double album, Physical Graffiti. That album was released on the band's own label, Swan Song Records, but was distributed by Atlantic. It was the first album in history to be certified platinum based purely on pre-orders alone. And it was a big critical success with Rolling Stone saying it was quote, the bands, Tommy beggars banquet and Sgt. pepper all rolled into one.
3: That, I mean, that is huge praise.
1: NME's Nick Kent said quote, The album's tonal density is absolutely the toughest, most downright brutal I've heard yet. Billboard called it, quote, a tour de force through a number of musical styles. And there are some great songs on this one. Houses of the Holy, I Love Trampled Underfoot, but there's one in particular that LD says is one of her top 15 favorite songs ever. So we're going to hear that one now. Yes. I'll let her introduce this one.
3: Yes. Honestly, I was actually introduced to this song through the hook being used by Puff Daddy in 1997. For a song Come With Me.
6: Oh God, and that sucked.
3: It sucked so bad. But I'm like, what is this? That the 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 driving guitar, the the drums were so hard and so heavy. And I'm like, what is this? Because I knew at this time Puff was sampling a lot of things, and I found right. out that it was this song specifically. And because of that, I latched on to this. The the 16-year-old in me latched on to this song. And to this day, yes, it is in my top 15 songs of all time. It is what I actually use to take a shower with if I need to, to put a time limit on my shower because it's the perfect amount of time to get through a shower. And uh, we're going to listen to it right now. And it is Kashmir. Kashmir. <laughs>
1: obviously a lot going on there you can hear the world music influence you know the plant liked but the whole thing is awesome the vocals are great the strings are awesome the horns are amazing the guitar is phenomenal but that's a good one to pick since we're doing an episode on, on bottom because what drives that song really
3: it's the drums oh, it's
1: 100%. The drums. it's a, a, amazing so physical graffiti hit number one in multiple countries and it sold almost nine million copies in america despite being a double album and and thus much more expensive than a regular album would be. Mm. In 1976, the band released Presence. Now, it's it's actually one of their lowest selling albums, though it still hit number one in the UK and America. And critically, reviews were a little bit mixed. The Daily Telegraph deemed it to be, quote, Zeppelin at their most blunted. I, I would say nobody's fault, but mine is a pretty standout track. But there's starting to be some fractures forming at this point for a number of reasons. Okay, so for one thing, Plant was still recovering from his uh, very severe auto accident and was in a wheelchair for the duration of the recording. He said he was claustrophobic recording in a small basement studio, missed his family, and apparently became upset at Page and Grant for even booking the sessions to start with. Page at this point, unfortunately, was pretty heavily hooked on smack yeah and and bottoms drinking was really getting out of control at this point so you, you kind of add all those things up and maybe that's why you got, not the best album from them on that one. Some also think that the sales were disappointing because it was overshadowed by the release of the band's movie that year, the song remains the same, and the soundtrack, which was basically a live Led Zeppelin album, and, and it did sell very well. So It should be mentioned that Bonham's family had grown by this time, with daughter Zoe being born in 1975. Now, Bonham, unlike his bandmates, who were t- uh, tax exiles, maintained his full-time residence in England. For a long time, Led Zeppelin was not actually allowed to play a show on British soil because three of the four members were tax exiles. Hmm. But Bonham was the only one who remained a, a, a British citizen his entire life. Now, in 1977, Robert Plant's son Carrick died of a very sudden viral infection, and uh, uh, understandably, the band took a long hiatus. During this time, Bonham did some studio work with other musicians, including playing on tracks by Lulu and Wings. Led Zeppelin came back in 1978 with In Through the Outdoor, but by this time, um, by the time they had reconvened to record the album, the band had split into two very distinct camps. You had Jones and Plant, who were quote, relatively clean, and then you had Page and Bonham. Page was battling severe heroin addiction, had lost a great deal of weight, and was often sick, while Bonham was fully in the throes of alcoholism.
6: Yes.
3: Um,
1: Frankly, the two just didn't show up for recording sessions a lot of the time. So Jones and Plant would often put songs together during the day while Bonham and Page straggled in late, if at all, in the night to record their parts. So it was a complete change from the band's beginnings when they would play songs live in the studio with the entire room mic'd up to capture the full sound that was being created and minimal overdubs being added later on. It was also the first time that Page didn't take the lead in terms of producing and arranging songs and writing lyrics. Much of the producing and arranging actually fell on John Paul Jones, who, much to my chagrin, had purchased a Yamaha synthesizer prior to the album's... recording and was, quote, working closely with Robert, which was something that had not happened before. Rolling Stone said that Page's diminished creativity resulted in little good material for Plant to work with, saying they found the lyrics he wrote, quote, inane. The reviewer also found Bonham's drumming to be heavy-handed. He said that Jones functions, quote, best behind Plant, not in front of him. Hmm. melody maker's review actually said that the first listen had quote everyone in the office rolling and laughing some critics actually did like the band's turn toward synthesizers though i don't know why anybody would
4: Uh uh and
1: ballads and a second look review in 2004 by rolling stone said that the album was quote maligned upon its release but now stands as an art rock oddity with some alluring tangents all of my love and fool in the rain are probably the only two songs Only album worth mentioning, in my humble opinion.
3: I love Fool in the Rain.
1: Fool in the Rain's a great song, and All of My Love is a great song. And I think Plant actually wrote that about his son who passed away. So hard to find much fault with that one. Page actually said the album could have been a springboard to something much better, but unfortunately, that would never happen. As the band launched its first tour of Europe in many years, Bonham reportedly looked tired. His heavy drinking was starting to take a toll on him physically. At a show in Germany, he collapsed on stage after three songs. Jeez. His sister told him that she wanted to come see him play when the band was going to do a a huge show at Nebworth. He urged her not to, saying that she should come to one of their indoor shows that was upcoming instead. She did anyway, and said in a documentary that was released recently that she felt if she didn't do it, that she would never get to see him play again.
3: And that's so weird because there are, we've had a history of people who
1: have had like premonitions of some premonitions. kind. Yeah. And I was going to say you, you've covered a lot of these in, in the course of doing this podcast that it's just people get weird vibes or feelings that something's up. And yeah, and I don't know. Uh, it's weird, but yeah, his, his sister felt like if she didn't go see that Nebworth show that she would never get to see him on stage again huh. on September 24th, 1980, John Bonham was picked up by Led Zeppelin assistant Rex King to attend rehearsals for an upcoming North American tour. Bonham asked him to stop for breakfast, at which he drank four quadruple screwdrivers.
3: Holy crap.
1: He then continued to drink heavily once arriving for rehearsals. The band rehearsed until late in the evening and then went to Paige's house. Around midnight, Bonham was reported to have fallen asleep. Someone took him to his bed and laid him on his side. Jones and a tour manager found him the next afternoon unresponsive. Jones then had to go and carry out the very unenviable task of telling the rest of the band that John Bonham was dead. Um, He was just 32 years old. An inquest determined that he had consumed the equivalent of 40 shots of vodka and had choked on his own vomit as he slept.
6: Wow. Wow.
1: There were no other illegal drugs found in his system. He was, however, taking a prescribed medicine for depression and anxiety, which maybe gives you a hint into perhaps why he was drinking as much as he was. There were rumors afoot that the band would bring in a new drummer, with Carmine apiece actually being mentioned as a, a prominent possibility. But just weeks after Bonham's passing, the band issued a press release which stated, quote, We wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep respect that we have for his family, together with the sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager, have left us to decide that we could not continue as we were. So basically, with about a two-sentence press release, Led Zeppelin was no more. Bonham was cremated, and his ashes were interred on October 12th at Rushock Parish Church in Worcestershire. His bandmates and Jeff Lynn were among the mourners, and Paul McCartney actually came and laid a wreath on his grave. Page said his friend's death was, quote, a massive loss to everybody. Bill Ward called him, quote, the groove master and said, quote, he wrote the Bible on rock drumming. He influenced essentially everybody who picked up a pair of sticks that followed him, that there's no way around that, especially anybody that played rock and roll. Dave Grohl said, quote, John Bonham played the drums like someone who didn't know what was going to happen next, like he was teetering on the edge of a cliff. No one has come close to that since, and I don't think anybody else ever will. I think he will forever be the greatest drummer of all times. Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers said to me, hands down, John Bonham was the best rock drummer ever. The style and the sound was identifiable as one person. Any drum set that he would play, it sounded like him. Rolling Stone ranked him as the greatest drummer of all times, and he won a reader's poll in Rolling Stone, quote, by a significant margin over whoever was in second place. The BBC named him the greatest drummer ever and Modern Drummer Magazine described him as, quote, the greatest rock and roll drummer in history. I also saw a very odd poll taken uh, in the UK of which celebrity music or which musician do you wish could return from the dead? John Bonham won just beating out Freddie Mercury and Elvis. Yeah. So so first of all, that kind of tells you how highly thought of he is in his native country because you know how beloved Freddie is there. Yes. So yes, so John Bonham won that poll just edging out Freddie Mercury and Elvis Presley, uh, which is pretty impressive. Modern Drummer Magazine, their managing editor wrote, quote, if the king of rock and roll is Elvis Presley, then the king of rock drumming was certainly John Bonham. Led Zeppelin did get back together to play live aid not everybody remembers that it was the three original members with phil collins on drums i should have warned you i'm sorry to please don't have rage um you may never have seen or heard it because they thought it was so bad that they have pretty much had it removed from any re-airings or albums that have been put out and if you've seen it, it it was bad for one thing there's a key ingredient missing that you can't replace it doesn't matter who you put back there but then on top of that, like Paige's guitar was out of tune and Plant had laryngitis and his voice was just, just mm. absolutely stripped and he couldn't sing and it was just a mess. Paige and Plant, now they did reunite, I want to say about 94 or 95 and, and went on a very successful tour. Did not have John Paul Jones along for some reason, which I never understood, but that Led Zeppelin, a, as they were, ended when John Bonham passed away, and the Los Angeles Times wrote fairly recently that Bonham still ranks as the greatest drummer ever, saying, "quote His beat still bangs like a mofo." So his greatness echoes to this day, just like a cannon shot. And that's all I got. Uh,
3: that was excellent. I I love hearing about the eccentricities of performers and their antics. I find there it's really interesting.
1: The man loved Wally sausages. What would you have me tell you?
3: That well, it's interesting. Like you don't hear about poets breaking their TVs, and you don't hear about like doctors drinking themselves to the point where like they punch people in the nose. I, it's, it's
1: it's. And I have never met a single haberdasher who shit in someone's shoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's
3: but
1: you know the, 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 what it seems like to me is that he certainly was taken to. Much of rock and roll's excess. Obviously, he took part in the wild parties and the drinking and a lot of the trappings. But it—it—it it, it seems like the more you read about him, he was a pretty simple guy who just liked, you know, driving cars and tending his cattle and being with his family.
3: I'm always sad when it ends this way, but knowing that he has left a legacy behind of not only a, a catalog of incredible, incredible songs. But knowing that generations to come will be influenced by him and pushed sure. our form even farther. So
1: Yeah, just that there will never be another in, in my opinion. So anyway, yeah. So the ending sucks as always when we do these shows. But
3: Well, I thought it was a fantastic episode. Thank you so much. We'll just do our socials really quick and then we will close out the show with a another incredible song. Okay. If you like what we're doing and would like to toss us some coins into our tip jar, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll heaven LT, Instagram rock and roll heaven LT, Facebook rock and roll heaven pod. Our website is still not saying it. You can email us at rock and heaven LT at gmail.com and you can check out the, the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at rock and
1: All righty. Well, this was fun. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. Good
3: night, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you so much, TJ, for this episode. Check us out next week, guys, and we will see you next time.
1: And we're going to close out with, uh, this was, for its time, pretty unusual. Uh, there, There had been rock instrumentals, but very few of them were essentially just drums. Now, there is guitar in parts of this, but this is pretty much just just John Bonham just going slap nuts crazy
6: <laughs> on his <laughs> set,
1: and I was interested to read he did not in one take play this as as uh, as its own separate piece. He actually did a couple of different pieces, and Jimmy Page kind of wove them together into the song that you end up hearing. So this one is from Led Zeppelin too. This was one of the first rock instrumentals that really gave drummers a chance to shine. This is Moby Dick, and we're uh, signing off from Rock and Roll Heaven.